Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We have been following the Gospel of St. Luke, and during the Christmas season, that has been scattered also in the different and the different Masses for Christmas Day with Gospels from Matthew and, and in preparation, Gospels from Matthew, and, and including Jesus' genealogy, the Annunciation to Joseph, and then, of course, the Gospel of John, the prologue, when we hear about the child as the Word who has been made flesh. Well, in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 2, verses 16 to 21, it's a short, it's a short um, selection but it is the consequence after the angels have announced to the shepherds that a child is born in swad- and lying in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger in Bethlehem. After that announcement is made, the shepherds um, become in, in, enabled and enlivened that they go into Bethlehem to seek out what the angels have told them. They find, the gospel says, the shepherds hurried away to Bethlehem and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw the child, they repeated what they had been told about him, and everyone who heard it was astonished at what the shepherds had to say. This is intentionally, and Luke's gospel is a gospel that places great emphasis on witnessing, on proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the eyewitnesses and, and the experiences of encounters with Jesus Christ. So that what happens now are the shepherds are the first to be basically in this model, basically the first to be called to become public witnesses to the birth of the Lord. And it says that they told that they, uh, everyone who heard um, after they had repeated what they had been told about this child, everyone who heard it was astonished at what the shepherds had to say. So basically what happens is that the shepherds bring a message based not only on the annunciation of the angels to the shepherds, but also the shepherds' proclamations to the people. There's a couple things involved in all this, and especially fitting, I think, for Luke to tell the story, because Luke is very, very concerned about the dangers of material wealth. And so he has a great emphasis on the poor, and on the poor within Israel as being the ones most open to receive the proclamation, the mystery of the Lord. Now, this, I think, can be misused and has always been misused, I suppose, because the poor have, it's, it's a multidimensional meaning in the Gospel of St. Luke. It does mean material poverty. It does mean that. But its meaning is not restricted to that. Its meaning goes back into the Old Testament, to the Old Testament where the poor of Yahweh, um, called the Anawim, um, were held up as an example to Israel of the virtues of poverty. And the reason was, is that when Israel was taken into captivity in Babylonia, that in that captivity, um, many simply acclimated to the... To the uh, to the way of life of the Babylonians. Many of them became engaged in, uh, in the enterprise and the business and the working 
of the uh, of the Babylonian state and the great city of Babylon, and they did very well for themselves, and they assimilated. There were those who did not do well for themselves for whatever reason, whether they refused, according, you know, to the Psalms, um, that we sat by the water, there we sat by the waters of, of Babylon, you know, and they said, sing to us songs of your homeland. We said, how could we sing of our homeland in a foreign soil, and so forth. There are those who have a deep consciousness that they don't belong in Babylon, whether that is the motivation for them not to be successful, assimilated, and settled down, or whether they lack the skills to do so. It is relatively immaterial, because the issue is, in in this story, is that the poor were the ones that when Cyrus and Darius um, released the the Jews from their exile in Babylon, allowed them to go home, most of them did not go home. There was a remnant that, with home, with that went home. The ones who basically had not invested their lives in the material realities and in the economic and social and political structures of Babylon. They were generally speaking the poor people and the less skilled laborers. And so when they returned, that is when poverty was seen then as a great virtue. <clears throat> not the grinding poverty of material want was not seen as a virtue in itself, but it was seen as a context in which people could be, were free enough to be faithful. And I think that that's in the whole notion of poverty <clears throat> within the Catholic Church, within the history of the Catholic Church. The whole notion of poverty actually is very, very deeply entwined with the notion of faithfulness to the Lord. Because without um, immense material wealth, people seemed to be free. They seemed to be free to pursue, you know, their, their relationship with God. And this certainly is carried over into the Christian era, um, witnessed to especially by uh, by St. Francis of Assisi, but also by St. Anthony of the Desert, who sold everything and gave it to the poor, and then went out into the desert by himself at the age of 19 or 20. And there spent that with the Lord. And in spending it with the Lord, um, they, he encountered the forces of evil. He wrestled in the desert with the forces of good and of evil. And St. Anthony lived that way up until where he was over 100 years old. But, <clears throat> but what here is happening is that um, the poor of Yahweh, the Anawim, are the ones that straggle out of Babylon and straggle back into Jerusalem. Their lack of skill explains to some degree why it took so long to rebuild the temple. But they have become kind of, in a sense, minor heroes in the story of the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. And in Christianity, they become seen as great heroes because they witnessed that necessity for freedom in order for us to respond and relate to the living God. What we see here then in this story, Luke wants it very clear, of course, that Christ is born in a manger and that <clears throat> Joseph and Mary have taken refuge in a stable. The child is born in the manger and the shepherds then are told to go there and look for it. Now, the shepherds were certainly very poor people. The shepherds were the ones who were kind of socially unacceptable also. 
because in order to protect their sheep, um, they had to stay close to them at all times, which meant that even at night they had to sleep with the herd and or and the flock, and that they therefore, you know, were not exceedingly clean. Um, they were exceedingly smelly, and it was not certainly. Um, seemed to be a great and, and uh, upwardly mobile position within the society. They were therefore within Israel, the poorest of the poor. So that they are the ones then who come to see the Lord. And it is they themselves, the poorest of the poor, who acclaim and proclaim the coming of the Lord. They are the first ones to publicly witness to what has transpired. They are motivated to do so by the power of choirs of angels, and then they are awed by what they see and cannot contain themselves in telling what they have seen and heard to the people around them who were astounded when they heard about the presence of the child in their midst. The first evangelical preachers, therefore, within Christianity were the poorest of the poor, They were the shepherds who were out in the field and came in to see the Lord Jesus. The gospel then goes on, and it says, As for Mary, she treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. We know that Mary certainly knows what has taken place, but she's not quite sure what it really means. And now she finds the shepherds coming in from the field telling her that they have heard the birth of her son announced by a choir of angels and that they have traveled now into Bethlehem in order that they might see the child which the angels spoke of. So Mary then begins to get glimpses of what her life is going to be like and what the life of her son is going to be like. When Mary accepted the uh, the will of, of God and became pregnant with his son through the power of the Holy Spirit, she knew full well that life was not going to be normal. But as a woman freed from original sin, she certainly had a clarity of understanding, a clarity of insight, and, uh, and, a, and a deep and abiding wisdom that was in harmony with the light of the human person, with the Son himself, whom now she carried in his human form within her. And so, basically, then, Mary is going through the very human process. Sinlessness does not make you clairvoyant. And so she is going through the human process now of trying to wrap her own understanding around what has happened in her and what is transpiring in the midst of the world. She knows that the child is of God. She does not know what that means for her or for the child. And she begins to catch glimpses of that when the shepherds come in. And she knows now that God has not put his son into the world and then abandoned him to, uh, to uh, merely the wisdom and the goodness of human parents, human persons but that the mighty signs, the angelic signs, are going to continue to surround him and remind her over and over again of the great mystery which she encountered in the Annunciation and the great mystery which is going to unfold in her life and in the life of her son. So Mary treasured all these things, and she pondered them in her heart. 
So <clears throat> she didn't sit down and try to analyze. She just began to collect within her heart for reflection the mysteries and the miracles which she was becoming increasingly aware of in the life of her son. Certainly there is a new moment of awareness when the child is important enough that Herod wants to kill him. And so the flight into Egypt is another moment in Mary's life in the scriptures in which she begins to realize that while this is a blessed child, while this is a child of God, that somehow or other it is not necessarily going to lead to a glorious earthly kingdom in his lifetime. For here already, as a small baby, he is forced to flee from the murderous intentions of Herod, one of the most, a man who even killed his own sons because he was afraid they might try to usurp his power a man without conscience, without principle, um, a man exceedingly cruel, and um, one who would be willing to kill all the children of Bethlehem in order and maybe with it get the child that he was afraid of, the child that he thought might frighten him. So as the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, it was exactly as they had been told. The enunciation of the angels to the shepherds turns out to be exactly what the shepherds witness and experience. This conformity between the angelic messengers and the, and the consequences of that message, it's kind of an important insight also because Mary herself is, um, has had the annunciation made to her by the angel Gabriel, and Joseph has had the annunciation made to him in the form of a dream. So what the angels are telling Joseph, Mary, and now the shepherds, what the angels have been proclaiming to them, they are beginning to realize is absolutely in conformity with the reality that they see and that they experience. There is no dissonance between the message of God and the reality that that message announces and points to. For us, that is an incredibly important reality. That, and it's one of the great struggles of moving theologically through time, that somehow or other, the original message proclaimed by the Savior has to be in conformity with the reality of witnessing an experience that takes place in the lives of the faithful people. That's why when we take the church and we twist the church into a simply a political organization, we structure our language of politics as ways to discuss and talk about the church. In so doing, we have obfuscated the message and we have we have blurred the witnessing, for there is not great conformity between the wisdom of man and the reality of the world in which we live. We have many people in this world who believe themselves to be very wise and very knowledgeable, and yet even in that, it is seldom is there absolute conformity between their wisdom and uh, and and the realities that come to be, that people experience, that they witness to, that they see. I think we find that um, particularly today in, in, this, in this vitriolic kind of political partisanship that has so affected the secular world that it has also now seeped 
into the world of the church and the language of the church, when it starts to become political language, when it starts to become sociological language, when it starts to become kind of social language, it begins to obfuscate and to blur the reality of what has been presented to us. For first of all to us must come the light and the insight of the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of his proclamation. And as it does so, it is to help us to be, it is helping to illuminate our minds and our hearts that we may look outward and reinterpret the world in the light of the gospel instead of the gospel in the light of the world. And that, I think, is one of the great crises of the modern church. It is, in some ways, a fruit of the Second Vatican Council, which, in an attempt to become relevant to a turbulent age in the middle of the 20th century, used the language of the world over and over again to try and to explain itself. What we've seen as the consequence of that is many people getting trapped in the political and historical language of the of the council rather than in the heart of what the council discussed and what the council wanted to bring to renewal within the church and so by abandoning the language of revelation we ultimately then began also to abandon revelation itself for in the hebrew world and in the scriptures language and reality are inseparable when we separate them then we lack a deep understanding of either. We lack a deep understanding of the reality of the Word of God. The language of faith should be that which we use to interpret the realities in which we live. What has happened in this highly charged partisan age in which we live is that we have reversed that and we have attempted to interpret revelation with the language of the secular world. When we do so, we do not, there is not conformity with the things that we speak about and the, the things that we have said. There is a growing dissonance then between language and reality in the Catholic Church as there is in the whole world. It is it is our challenge, and it is the challenge of the church in all of its levels and dimensions, to return to a language of faith that resonates so that our words resonate with the word, and that what we speak then is an interpretive tool of what the Lord has told us. And then doing so lies the mystery of fidelity. And so perhaps the humility that Mary is said to have as she treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart as a process beginning for her sitting in a stable and looking upon her child in a manger, that what's happening to her is this humility, this idea of awe in a way of what is happening to her even now with the testimony of the angels and how much more so as the life of Jesus goes on. We ourselves, in a sense, should contemplate, reflect upon, and pray to the Blessed Mother, asking her to help us to ponder also in our hearts the Word of God as it comes to us through revelation, and to avoid at all costs um, twisting human language so that God becomes subjected 
to our power, our wisdom, our interpretation, instead of it being exactly the other way around as it was intended to be in the beginning. The angelic truth is submitted to, it is surrendered to, and it is an interpretive tool in the minds of all those engaged in the dramas that we're seeing, the dramas that we're talking about. They did not then go back and reinterpret. Herod did. Herod went back and reinterpreted the fulfillment of Revelation as a political phenomenon, which led him to anger, to rage, and to murder. That's something we should take great note of. When we try to interpret the presence of God in the world and the language of God's presence in faith and revelation, when we attempt to interpret that in the context only of the world and reverse the whole process of wisdom and understanding, what we get is ignorance and darkness. And it is in this ignorance and darkness that Herod the wicked man killed the children of Jerusalem, beheaded John the Baptist, and so forth. There is a real relationship between the abandonment of the revelation of Jesus Christ to humanity and the, and the gathering storms of chaos and violence and ignorance within the world in which we live. For only in submission to the word of God can there be any real wisdom or understanding in the world. And as we systematically, as we systematically um, exile the language of the word from the discussions of our society, even the society of the church itself, even the faith of the church itself, the politicization of the faith of the church is, in a sense, an attack upon the word of God and the authenticity of revelation. Then it says, And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was exactly as they had been told. Once again, the conformity to the enunciation, the revelation, and the reality which they witnessed. There is an absolute conformity between those two. It was you went back and attempted to interpret the birth of the Christ the way Herod interpreted the birth of the Christ, you would have the gathering seeds of storms of revolution and all of those. None of that is part of the revelation of Jesus Christ. None of it. He never discusses the issue of the Roman Empire. He never, except in the fact of render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and then paying the taxes and so forth. But he does not go on. He is not calling for the violent overthrow of the Roman Empire. He is not calling for the gathering of a great army of Israel. In fact, when he's in the garden and when he's in the process of being arrested and Peter takes up the sword to protect him, and Jesus says, do you not think I could call a legion of angels? In other words, don't you think that God can handle this situation? What makes you think that it all relies on you? That's another serious issue within modern Catholicism. Everybody has to have their own wisdom, their own insights, and try then to impose that upon the society in which they live. Not because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, but it's because what they want the revelation of Jesus Christ to mean, and they could care less what it really is. So this conformity between revelation and witness, revelation and experience, is a critical, critical part of the 
of the of the narrative stories of the gospels that never never does jesus cast his proclamation in purely political terms. If he uses politics at all, it simply is an example of something. It's not the object of his proclamation. And that is amazingly troublesome in in the modern world. And I suppose it's an occupational hazard of democracy where we're forced to participate in our self-governance. That we don't have, if you might call it, um, the unfortunate situation or the right to disengage from public society, as perhaps was possible during the age of the Roman Empire and during the age of the monarchies, the emperors and kings and so forth. There was not much you could do, so participation in government was not really a primary value within the society. Locally, perhaps it was. In the whole stress and strain between the serfs and the lords and the whole idea of the common pastures, the common grounds in England and so forth. Yes, there was a lot of local problems that were dealt with. But the idea of reinterpreting revelation and imposing that revelation on the political entities and economic entities of any given age is being, in a way, unfaithful to revelation itself. Then, it says, when the eighth day came and the child was to be circumcised, they gave him the name Jesus the name the angels had given him before his conception. Jesus, Yeshua, meaning God saves. And so Luke is more interested probably in the naming of the child than Luke is interested in the circumcision of the child. But the circumcision of the child made the child subject to the laws of Moses. And we find throughout the Gospels that Jesus is respectful of the law, unless there is a good reason for him to use the exception as a way of teaching and instructing and witnessing to people something about the freedom of the truth of the coming of the Son of God. So that what happens then is as the child sheds its first blood for the sake of the people of Israel, for his blood flows from the circumcision to join him to the chosen people and make him subject to the law of Moses. From within the law, therefore, he is going to reinterpret the meaning of the new covenant and the new beginning. This, then, is what Luke is trying to help us to understand. He is more important, and it is more important to him that God saves becomes the name of the child than it is actually and really that he becomes subject to the law of Moses. But now that name, they said, had the angels had been given to him before his conception. Once again, the revelation of the angels, there is in fact the proclamation, the reality. When the angels say his name will be thus and his name is thus, there is a conformity between the reality and the revelation. And that's the harmony that we as Catholics must seek within the church. Not that we become fractured and torn apart and made shallow by the partisan politics of an age, but that we penetrate through this darkness that we have created in order to see the light of truth, and the light of revelation. And once we have done so, and once our insight conforms itself 
to what has been given to us in Revelation, the object then to become public witnesses and to proclaim to the truth that we have been shown and the truth that has been made known to us. During this season of the birth of the Lord, let us ask the Lord to help us to live as the faithful, as the ones whose lives are in conformity, not with the world, but with the Word of God. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.